Hi, and welcome to The Week in Women. I'm your host, Jill Filipovich, and I'm back from a hiatus. Thank you for your patience. I was traveling for a few weeks and teaching a writing retreat and just didn't have the capacity to record. But now it's fall, I'm back home, and The Week in Women is back in action. So thank you so much for being here. The Week in Women is a rundown of the week's gender and women's rights news, and it's available early for subscribers to jill.substack.com. So if you want The Week in Women before everyone else, head to jill.substack.com and sign up for a paid subscription. This week, we're talking about Russian trolls amplifying feminist divisions, state abortion bans going into effect and going in front of the courts, and the brave women in Iran who are standing up for their rights to bodily autonomy. In a huge story by Ellen Berry at the New York Times, new evidence points to Russian troll farms targeting American feminist movements and the Women's March in particular, and sowing factional divisions. One of the Women's March leaders, Linda Sarsour, was a prime target. And it was stunning in real time to see how fast the Women's March and the movement behind it seemed to fall apart. That is not, of course, all the fault of Russia. Russian trolls didn't create divisions within the feminist movement. But they were excellent at exploiting weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And so they amplified and sometimes invented allegations of feminists not being intersectional enough, so-called white feminism, as well as claims that Sarsour was a secret radical anti-Semite. Linda Sarsour is not, of course, a moderate figure, and I don't think she'd claim that she is. And there are very real concerns with the Women's March and the feminist movement more broadly when it comes to intersectionality, racial justice, and anti-Semitism. What is notable, though, is how fragile social justice movements are and how easy divisions are to exploit and how old a strategy this is. Just ask the FBI. And so this Russia story, it's an important lesson for activists and those who care about social justice issues. The lesson is not pledge fealty to the movement at all costs, but it is be diligent about where you're getting your information and what you believe. Notice if the division is becoming the story and ask what other forces might be in play to fan growing flames. In France, two leftist parties are in turmoil after allegations of intimate partner abuse. One leftist MP stepped down after he admitted to slapping his wife, which is probably as it should be. Shamefully, though, the leader of his party defended him saying, quote, I salute his dignity and his courage. Only later did that same leader tweet that the slap was unacceptable. And this is not the first time leftist lawmakers in France have been accused of bad behavior toward women, nor the first time that their male colleagues have written it off, circled the wagons, or covered it up. And all of that has French feminists angry and asking who exactly leftist feminist parties are actually representing. In Indiana, an abortion ban that was set to go into effect has been put on hold by a judge as the court considers whether the ban violates Indiana's constitution. We've seen similar legal battles play out across the U.S. as a patchwork of anti-abortion laws pass or go into effect. 
And while this is good news, it, it means that Indiana cannot outlaw abortion quite yet, it's also total whiplash for providers and patients. The unpredictability of these abortion laws means that providers are making tough decisions about whether to stay open, to continue paying staff, to continue paying rent, to do all of the things one has to do when one runs a business, but under threat of their work becoming criminalized at any time. And women, too, have to make impossible choices about their own futures based on incomplete information. If you're pregnant and you don't want to be, do you make an appointment at the clinic nearby and risk it being shut down by a bad court decision? Or do you commit to spending tons of money you may not have and time you may not get off of work to travel out of state to a clinic that is already maxed out with this new influx of red state demand? Even when abortion criminalization laws are suspended or paused by a court, those laws still have hugely disastrous effects. West Virginia also largely banned abortion this week. The governor signed a strict abortion criminalization law, and with the stroke of his pen, abortion became a criminal act in West Virginia. And in Michigan, a Republican candidate for the U.S. House, who was backed by Donald Trump, was apparently the founder of the Society for the Critique of Feminism when he was a student at Stanford in the early 2000s. The Republican candidate, John Gibbs, argued that women are intellectually inferior to men, that extending the right to vote to women has made the country measurably worse, and that workplaces are worse off when women are in them. A patriarchal male-run society, Gibbs wrote, is, quote, the best model for the continued success of a society. His spokesperson shrugged the comments off as simply the musings of a college kid, and Gibbs retains the support of Trump and the Republican Party. And speaking of patriarchal male-run societies, our deep dive this week is into the incredible women and many good men of Iran who have been out in the streets protesting against their country's dictatorial leadership and the misogynist morality police. The protests stem from the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old who was apprehended by the morality police, allegedly for wearing her hijab incorrectly. And she died while in their custody. The morality police say she had a heart attack. Her family says she was in perfect health and that the morality police must have done something to bring about the end of her life. She was in detention for three days before she died, all over a piece of cloth. Her death has become a catalyst for Iranians who are fed up with their tyrannical regime and are particularly incensed that the nation is devoting its resources to policing head coverings when so many Iranians are struggling through a devastating financial crisis. Thousands have turned out to protest and are shouting slogans like death to the dictator and death to the oppressor. Women are tearing off their hijabs and burning them in public pyres. Some are paying with their lives. The police are responding with extreme force, and at least 17 people have been killed and more than 700 injured. Male law enforcement officers are physically attacking and assaulting women simply for standing up for their basic right to personal dignity and bodily autonomy. The government has also cut off access to a variety of social media and messaging platforms in an attempt to stop its citizens from organizing the protests. In Tehran, 
city power was cut at night in the neighborhoods where protests had flared. In the meantime, Iran's president went to the UN General Assembly and whined about double standards. The U.S. and Canada, he basically said, aren't perfect when it comes to human rights either. So who are they to tell Iran what to do? And listen, the U.S., Canada, and other Western nations aren't perfect when it comes to human rights. The U.S. has waged disastrous, deadly, unnecessary wars in the Middle East, and that should be a great shame. But these guys do bad things too isn't a great defense. The Iranian president was also slated for an interview with CNN's Christian Amapur during his trip to New York. But less than an hour before the interview was supposed to begin, his team requested that Amanpour wear a headscarf. Amanpour, who grew up in Tehran, does not typically wear a headscarf when she's in a country where it's not required, and so she politely declined. She told CNN's New Day program, Here in New York, or anywhere else outside of Iran, I've never been asked by any Iranian president, and I have interviewed every single one of them since 1995, either inside or outside of Iran, never been asked to wear a headscarf. I very politely declined on behalf of myself and CNN and female journalists everywhere because it is not a requirement. It's not a requirement. And frankly, it's an insult. Clearly, the Iranian president knew it would be bad optics to sit down with an unveiled woman as women in his own country were protesting mandatory veiling. The interview was called off. And good on Amanpour and CNN for refusing to cow to this man's misogynist demands, because that's what mandatory hijab laws and requests and demands for female covering are. They are misogynist demands. So is the pressure to wear a hijab or any other piece of clothing only for female-specific modesty. That isn't to say that every woman who wears a hijab is a victim of the patriarchy any more than is any woman who wears a bikini or high heels. It isn't to say that a hijab is inherently anti-feminist any more than a bikini is or high heels are. The choices about what we wear are complicated, and they fold in gender as well as religion, culture, race, class, and other identity markers. Feminists can simultaneously leave individual women alone for what they choose to wear, while also continuing to critique cultural and social expectations, and certainly laws, that suggest there is something morally superior about women who dress modestly, and that create penalties, whether legal or social, for women who transgress whatever ever-changing definition of modesty a bad actor wants to enforce. Demands for female modesty, whether those are mandatory hijab laws in Iran or some other conservative Muslim nations, or a high school principal in the U.S. who suspends a female student over her spaghetti-strapped tank top, are sexist and dangerous. They suggest that women's bodies are inherently sexually tempting and that the onus is on women to prevent men from temptation and not on men to stop behaving violently toward us. There's a reason why demands for female modesty also go hand in hand with assumptions of male predation, presumptions of male power, and with blaming women who are assaulted or harassed by men. There's a reason why so many of the enforcers of female modesty across cultures and religions and nations also seek to curtail female freedom and bodily autonomy more broadly. There is a reason 
why feminists the world over have such similar demands, and that chief among those demands is sovereignty over our own bodies, inside and out. Modesty culture and purity culture are bullshit. They are bullshit when the demands for them come from Christian conservatives or Iranian clerics, and they are bullshit when they are written into law or simply enforced through social shame. And of course, women can choose to dress as modestly as they wish, and that doesn't make modesty culture feminist simply because some women choose to be more modest, whether it's a Mormon woman covering her shoulders or a Muslim woman covering her hair or me wearing a tunic because I'm feeling self-conscious at the beach. It doesn't make any of those women anti-feminists, of course. It is just to say that making a choice of what to wear is not in and of itself necessarily a feminist act. It's often just getting dressed. But public rejection of and resistance to patriarchal laws and misogynist modesty demands, those are feminist as hell. And so we should all be standing with the Iranian women who are risking their lives to change their country for the better and who are clear that their value and their dignity and their goodness as human beings has absolutely nothing to do with a piece of cloth. And that's it for the week in women. Thank you, as always, for listening. And remember, if you subscribe to jill.substack.com, you get the week in women before anyone else. And if you're enjoying the show, I'm always grateful if you rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. I'll see you back here next week. Bye.